I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Writer and scholar Carl Polanyi lived the turbulent life of his times. A celebrated student leader in his native Hungary, he was injured in the First World War and then twice exiled. First to Vienna, where he became a political journalist in the 1920s, and then to England, where he took part in the workers' education movement during the later 1930s. After the Second World War, he lived and taught in the United States, and his final years were spent in Canada, where he died in 1964. He still speaks to the world of today through a book called The Great Transformation. Every time I put The Great Transformation on a reading list, which is whenever I can, the reaction is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I could sell tickets. I've had people coming you know, to my office saying, this is the best book I've ever read. It's very mobilizing, it's very empowering as an analysis of contemporary society. The Great Transformation tells the story of modern market society, from its first stirrings in the 18th century to its catastrophic descent into depression and world war in the 20th century. First published in 1944, it's become one of the most widely read and widely cited books of our time. There are editions in Swedish, Turkish, and Chinese. An Albanian translation has just been announced. Marshall McLuhan, when he first read it, said that he experienced a rare thrill of recognition and awareness. Economist Abe Rothstein compared the book's impact on him to an earthquake which shook him to his roots. Tonight's Ideas program is about the Great Transformation. It's part of a continuing series on Carl Polanyi's life and thought. Here's writer David Cayley. In late 1940, Karl Polanyi and his wife, Ilona Duchinska, moved to Vermont, where he took up an appointment as visiting scholar at Bennington College. Six weeks later, he wrote to his daughter back in England about the enlarged scale of their new American life. A huge apartment, a huge old Buick sedan, fierce winter ices and snows, and views of mountains, he adds lyrically with their purple and ultramarine breaking through the pattern of frosty forest. Best of all, a fellowship from the Rockefeller Foundation gave him time to write. And the writing came easily. Even Polanyi was surprised by the fluency and assurance with which he composed. By 1943, when he and Ilona Duchinska returned to England, the great transformation was at the publishers, lacking only finishing touches. The book enjoyed a modest success from the beginning, particularly in the United States, and its influence has continued to grow. In the academic world, it's left its mark on anthropology, sociology, and political economy. And it has had a remarkably diverse appeal outside the academy as well. In my experience, you can never be quite sure on whose bookshelf you might find The Great Transformation. The power of the book, in my opinion, lies in its ability to make the familiar strange, 
so that the reader sees it in a new light. Polanyi had an insider's knowledge of politics, history, and economics. His reading by this time was vast, but he had an outsider's point of view. He wrote with feeling, but also with a certain detachment, like an anthropologist who can see the peculiarity of what his subjects take for granted. And what he shows in this curious light is the modern market economy. Before modern times, there existed, as a rule, no term to designate the concept of economy. It cannot be merely a matter of chance that, until very recent times, no name summed up the organization of the material conditions of life, even in the language of civilized peoples. Only 200 years ago did an esoteric sect of French thinkers coin the term and call themselves economists. Their claim was to have discovered the economy. This esoteric French sect was the physiocrats, the first school of political economy. It was from them that Adam Smith learned of the hidden hand, that invisible providence by which free markets transform the play of individual interests into a common good. What was radically new in their thought was the idea of economy as a self-adjusting system. Markets in themselves are ancient institutions, but before the modern era, Polanyi says, they were always carefully controlled. Obscure as the beginnings of local markets are, this much can be asserted that from the start, this institution was surrounded by a number of safeguards designed to protect the prevailing economic organization of society from interference by market practices. The peace of the market was secured by rituals and ceremonies which restricted its scope while ensuring its ability to function within given narrow limits. The gearing of markets into a self-regulating system, on the other hand, means no less than the running of society as an adjunct to the market. Instead of economy being embedded in social relations, social relations are embedded in the economic system. The vital importance of the economic factor to the existence of society precludes any other result. For once the economic system is organized in separate institutions, Society must be shaped in such a manner as to allow that system to function according to its own laws. This, in essence, is the Great Transformation. The move from markets that were subject to strict customary control to markets that could dictate to society. In the years after the Great Transformation appeared, Karl Polanyi would undertake extensive studies of how markets and trade operated before this move. One of his collaborators was the anthropologist Anne Chapman, who now lives in Paris. She's recently been studying the great market at Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire, on the site of present-day Mexico City, as it was just before the city was destroyed by Spanish conquistadors in the early 16th century. It was a tremendously active market which uh, met every five days and uh, people from all over the Aztec Empire uh, brought in uh, uh, commodities to exchange there and particularly also those around the, the Great Lake of Texcoco brought in their uh, 
their goods to be exchanged, uh, to be sold. But even though the market was, was tremendously active and uh, was of great economic importance, it didn't go beyond the marketplace. It wasn't a market system. It wasn't a market system because market exchange was permitted only in a certain place on a certain day. And even then, and Chapman says, prices were strictly controlled. The prices were set. They were set by the state. We don't know exactly what uh, official decided that, but there was a council in the market, a sort of um, a court who, uh, of, uh, I think it was about three judges, who were always present. And the market was supervised to see that uh, there was no deviation from the set prices. So it was a controlled situation as far as the buying and selling was concerned. No. It was controlled by the state, by the officials of the state, which in this case uh, were the three great judges who were present uh, during the market and the inspectors, the inspectors who went around to make sure that uh, goods were being sold by the set prices. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the prices never varied from one year to another, you know, depending on the goods and depending on if they were agricultural goods, if there had been a great uh, drought someplace, then the prices might would be set differently. But uh, it was not by any matter of means a supply and demand situation. The market at Tenochtitlan was, in Karl Polanyi's terms, socially embedded. And this was true of markets generally, from Mesoamerica to medieval Europe. There were exceptions, of course. Polanyi's own studies showed that supply and demand sometimes determined prices in the Mediterranean grain trade after the 4th century BC. But medieval Europe reverted to the economics of Aristotle, who decisively rejected floating prices in favor of an economy founded on the principles of justice, self-sufficiency, and harmonious social relations. How the way to one big market was prepared is obviously a complex story. But two causes stand out in Polanyi's account. One was the destruction of people's ability to subsist from the land, which left them with no alternative to wage labor. Journalist Linda McQuaig is the author of All You Can Eat, an analysis of the new capitalism which draws heavily on the work of Karl Polanyi. She describes the enclosure of the land in early modern Europe. Something like a third of all the land in England in medieval times was common land. That is, it was held communally. And the ordinary people had certain rights to that land. They could graze their cattle on that land. First of all, they had to work on the estate of the big landowners. But in addition to that work they had to do, they had certain rights on the estate. And there was certain land on the estate that was held in common, where they would be able to graze their cattle, where they would be able to forage for wood and for fruits and berries. And the amazing thing was, within that common land, there was virtually everything that the peasant needed for his very, his or her very primitive lifestyle. So he had a kind of an independence in a way. And what ends up happening with the rise of capitalism is you get the enclosure movement, the owners of the land partition it off with big hedges to they enclose it and close it off to the access by the ordinary people. 
Now, what that means is they're able to develop their agriculture and their sheep farming much more successfully, but it's a tremendous, tremendous loss for the ordinary peasants who traditionally had access to that land, and that gave them a a fair bit of independence. And so for several hundred years, you get a huge, huge resistance to that enclosure movement. There's the anti-enclosure movement, basically a spontaneous kind of uprising. And they do things like they come out in the middle of the night in bands and rip out the hedges and tear up the land to regain their access to the common land. There's all kinds of interesting court battles. Basically, it's a losing case because inevitably, of course, the powerful landowners end up squeezing the the peasants out and they lose access to their land and they become essentially unable to function as independent little farmers anymore. Most of them end up as landless peasants forced to work in what become the factories and the mines and the farms of the rising capitalist class. And one of the points that Polanyi makes in that is that when history is told from through the eyes of those who win it, we see this development, you know, the English Revolution and the rise of property rights. This is treated as the mar- part of the march towards progress. Whereas, in fact, if you look at the story from the eyes of the peasants, it was a devastating blow. They lost their access to land. And so you have the rise of property rights, private property rights, but at the same time, you have the loss or the taking away of common property rights. The destruction of the commons made a market society possible. What made it necessary, the second great cause, was the Industrial Revolution and the establishment of the factory system. Economist Abe Rothstein of the University of Toronto was Karl Polanyi's student and later his friend and collaborator. Polanyi's perspective on this was that we had two independent strands coming together. The decision to use elaborate and expensive technology on the one side was wedded to a unheard of new institutional system, the self-regulating market economy, which in the 19th century and in the 18th, at the end of the 18th century, would have been the only institutional available method or system to make this new technological breakthrough work. Factories with two or three hundred machines were expensive. The only way in which people could be induced to invest in them is to give them some assurance that two things were going to be reliable and assured to them. First, that there would be a reliable supply of labor to work those machines, and a reliable flow of raw materials or commodities on which the machines could work. Secondly, that there would be a means of disposing or an outlet for the vastly increased production which came from these machines. Capitalism, or the self-regulating market economy, was the only available institutional network at the time to make all of this happen. In Karl Polanyi's view, the idea of a self-regulating market 
was a response to the rise of machine industry. But the fact that there might be no other way to finance factories and dispose of their produce did not make the experiment of freeing markets from social control any less radical, nor did it diminish the cultural resistance evoked by the idea of putting society at the mercy of a mere mechanism. The free market, therefore, required some compelling ideological justification. And this was provided by the classical economists, who argued that the market was no mere human artifact, but embodied the laws of nature. The 19th century discovered the existence of a society that was not subject to the laws of the state, but, on the contrary, subjected the state to its laws. No human community had yet been conceived of which was not identical with law and government. Now a new concept of law was introduced into human affairs, that of the laws of nature. Let the market be given charge of the poor, and things will look after themselves. No government was needed. The biological nature of man appeared as the given foundation of a society that was not of a political order. Economic society had emerged as distinct from the political state. There had never been a society, Polanyi says, that had not organized its affairs according to its own peculiar sense of what was right, fitting, and proper. No community, in his words, that was not identical with law and government. The first economists argued that society was governed by inherent or natural laws and that their new science could discover them. On this basis, thinkers like Thomas Malthus attacked the so-called poor laws by which the British state for centuries had recognized its obligation to provide a bare living to anyone in need. Fred Block is a professor of sociology at the University of California at Davis and the author of the introduction to a new edition of The Great Transformation. He studied Malthus's celebrated essay on the principle of population. Malthus proceeds using the same logic as Newton used in terms of discovering the hidden laws that organize the movement of the heavenly bodies. Malthus proposes to elucidate the hidden rules that govern human population and economy. And from these, Malthus derives the fundamental proposition that if you are nice to the poor, if, as the old English poor laws did, provided relief to the poor who had fallen upon hard times or given assistance to women who were left taking care of children on, on their own, that if you did that, it had the consequence of teaching the poor that they didn't have to be responsible for their own behavior and that the appropriate way to show compassion is not to provide the poor with relief but with tough love, denying them assistance so that they will learn that they have to change their behavior, stop being lazy, uh, sexually dissolute, and and so forth, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and then the problem of poverty will solve itself. Malthus and his many like-minded contemporaries were successful 
and getting the old poor laws changed. After 1834, outdoor relief, so-called, was abolished, and the workhouse became the only recourse for those in need. This was the beginning of the era of laissez-faire. For economists like Malthus or David Ricardo, this may have been according to nature. For Karl Polanyi, as he says on the first page of The Great Transformation, it represented an unprecedented turning away from the social nature of humankind. Our thesis is that the idea of a self-adjusting market implied a stark utopia. Such an institution could not exist for any length of time without annihilating the human and natural substance of society. It would have physically destroyed man and transformed his surroundings into a wilderness. Inevitably, society took measures to protect itself, but whatever measures it took impaired the self-regulation of the market, disorganized industrial life, and thus endangered society in yet another way. Once the free market was established, in Karl Polanyi's view, society was placed in an impossible position. It could not but protect itself. But protecting itself might mean biting the invisible hand on which its livelihood now depended. This is one reason why Polanyi calls the idea of a self-adjusting market a utopia, which means literally a no-place, a dream that can't be realized. Another is the fact that market society is founded on the fiction that the most basic elements of social life can be treated as mere commodities. Polanyi particularly singles out three of these elements, land, labor, and money, which he calls the fictitious commodities. This is what he says about land. What we call land is an element of nature inextricably interwoven with man's institutions. To isolate it and form a market out of it was perhaps the weirdest of all the undertakings of our ancestors. Traditionally, land and labor are not separated. Labor forms part of life. Land remains part of nature. Life and nature form an articulate whole. One big market, on the other hand, subordinates these elements to a mechanism. The proposition is as utopian in respect to land as in respect to labor. The economic function is but one of many vital functions of land. It invests man's life with stability. It is the site of his habitation. It is the landscape and the seasons. We might as well imagine his being born without hands and feet as carrying on his life without land. And yet to separate land from man and organize society in such a way as to satisfy the requirements of a real estate market was a vital part of the utopian concept of a market economy. Polanyi was trying to explain as powerfully as he could why this idea of a fully self-regulating market economy was a fantasy, why it couldn't possibly be realized in, in reality. And the fictitious commodities idea is his most elegant and powerful way of explaining this. Here again is Fred Block of the University of California. And what he said is that a commodity 
is by definition something which is produced for sale on a market. And in economic theory, when they talk about the supply and demand of widgets being balanced by the price mechanism, they argue that precisely because widgets are commodities. They're produced for sale on a market. And so if the supply of widgets is inadequate, the price goes up, and so more producers produce widgets. People who wanted widgets, but they're too expensive, shift to something else, to a substitute, and sure enough, supply and demand are balanced by the price mechanism. But Polanyi said, let's look at these actually existing market economies. Three of the most important things that are bought and sold, land, labor, and money, aren't commodities. They weren't produced for sale on, on the market. What is land? Land is nature. It was produced by the deity or if you're not religious, by some geological processes over the, the eons. We're not producing more of it. What is labor? Labor is the activity of human beings. Human beings are not produced to be sold on the market. The supply of labor at any given moment is the result of historic population trends that operate independently in the long term from market forces. What is money? The, the money supply in any given country is not generally produced simply through the operation of market forces. In fact, that happened to some degree in the 19th century, and what happened was you had extremely unstable banking systems that collapsed every 20 years, leading to enormous depressions that for much of the last 150 years, most countries have had central banks that have regulated the money supply, that have expanded it at certain times, contracted in it at other times. So they're not commodities. They're fictitious commodities. But for the purposes of constructing our economic models in which supply and demand will be balanced by the price mechanism, we basically make the claim that fictitious commodities will operate in the same way as regular commodities. But this is a completely problematic assumption. I mean, so the, the obvious case is unemployment. Demand for human labor diminishes. People are thrown out of work. There is no immediate readjustment of the wage level that brings those people back to work and they have to eat in the meantime. So inevitably, governments have to make policies to balance the supply and demand for these critical fictitious commodities. Fictitious commodities are a perfect illustration of why Karl Polanyi calls the self-adjusting market a stark utopia, an idealization. Were land, labor, and money treated as real commodities, it would not be long, Polanyi says, before both humanity and nature would be annihilated. Land must be zoned, working conditions legislated, the money supply managed. But utopias are attractive. 
Fred Block says. The idea of the self-regulating economy is a way to deny the reality of society. It's a way to say, no, we don't have a kind of complex interdependence with our fellow human beings. We can go out there in the market and pursue our self-interest as aggressively as we want, and everything will turn out fine because the invisible hand will automatically adjust and equilibrate and balance everything. So that this doctrine of market self-regulation, what George Soros has termed market fundamentalism, is so powerful because it captures this profound individualism, this desire for people to be free of the constraints of society, to deny their their interdependence, to believe that everything they have, they won by their own toil. The idea of a self-regulating market is utopian in Polanyi's terms because it denies the reality of society. And it is utopian in one further sense as well. Self-regulation is an ideal condition which can never be achieved, because society will always resist its achievement. But because it can never be realized, its claims can never be disproved. And it's because it captures this quasi-religious character that Fred Bloch likes financier George Soros's term, market fundamentalism. It conveys that this belief in, in self-regulating markets isn't like other kinds of social science positions based upon a kind of careful weighing of the evidence. It's a form of axiomatic thinking. And in that sense, market fundamentalism is closed off to any empirical disconfirmation. And this connects to Polanyi's point about how it's a utopian vision. In other words, that they can never actually implement the full program because resistance from society emerges. People aren't willing to have their entire livelihood destroyed and disrupted in this way. And so they can never get the program fully implemented, and then they can always blame the resistance and say that was the reason that the promised results didn't occur. So it makes them completely immune to any empirical evidence that the approach to the world is wrong. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Our program tonight is about economic historian Karl Polanyi, the author of The Great Transformation. It's presented by David Cayley. A completely self-regulating market was a utopia. It could not have been instituted without the state or sustained without a continual adjustment of society to its demands. But like other utopias, the experiment was tried. In the middle years of the 19th century, the market was disembedded and allowed to give the law to both state and society. And this domination of society by the market produced the new thing that Polanyi called market society a society whose relations were conditioned by the demands of its economy. 
Ron Stanfield is professor of economics at Colorado State University and the author of The Economic Thought of Karl Polanyi. He says that people's sense of time, of place, and of fitting behavior all had to shift. Market exchange requires a particular pattern of socialization. Market exchange can only operate within the social context of legitimating self-gain, of inculcating competitiveness and uh, acquisition as goals, because the whole ball of wax depends upon that bargaining mentality. And Polanyi then thinks that bargaining mentality leads to the erosion of social bonds, advertising. We have to teach our children that when they see a sports star, a movie star, in a commercial, that the person may not be exactly lying, but he's not exactly telling the truth either. So we have to inculcate this cynicism, and we have to inculcate business as business. There's things you do in business that's governed by a different ethos than the way you treat people in your community, your family, and so on. So this, he says, tends to undermine trust, social bonds, so it hollows out the social relationships, makes, uh, and there's a lot more to it, and there's also the mobility required by capitalism, tends to restrict family relationships to the immediate family, and so here the economy tends to dictate the nature of society. Market society, in order to function and survive, must instill motives that no other society has ever dared to foster. Its members must learn to be acquisitive and competitive. They must develop the split personality that goes with the divorce of economic life from social life. The recognition, as Ron Stanfield says, that business is business. And they must learn to live in a state of insecurity because their livelihood depends on the unpredictable motions of a miraculously productive but ultimately heartless machine. For Karl Polanyi, the development of this unprecedented form of society was, above all, a cultural change. Earlier critics of capitalism, like Marx, had seen the new working class as primarily a victim of economic exploitation. For Polanyi, the Industrial Revolution was, above all, a cultural wound. A social calamity is primarily a cultural and not an economic phenomenon that can be measured by income figures or population statistics. Not economic exploitation, as is often assumed, but the disintegration of the cultural environment of the victim is the cause of the degradation. The economic process may supply the vehicle of the destruction, and economic inferiority make the weaker yield, but the immediate cause of his undoing is not for that reason economic. The cause lies in the lethal injury to the institutions in which his social existence is embodied. The result is loss of self-respect and standards. In the section of the Great Transformation from which this passage is taken, Polanyi goes on to compare the situation of workers during the Industrial Revolution with the situation of colonial peoples. What occurred in both cases was a cultural deprivation, a loss of meaning and of dignity. And this, for Polanyi, far overshadows the undeniable element of economic exploitation. Robbed of the protective covering of cultural institutions, he says, human beings will 
perish from the effects of social exposure. And market society, simply because of its remorseless and inhuman dynamism, is constantly destroying cultural protections. Culture takes shape within a horizon, within limits. Market capitalism, Ron Stanfield says, must constantly break all limits. The market capitalist economy is inherently expansionary. It's driven by accumulation, what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Entrepreneurs are quick to take advantage of opportunities to make a, uh, an extraordinary profit by adjusting the pattern of resource allocation when there's a new market, a new idea, a new technology, or anything comes along. Whatever changes to put relative prices out of whack, entrepreneurs step into the breach and um, make extraordinary profits for a time with their innovation. But Schumpeter's creative destruction, there's a creative side of that. New value, new income opportunities, uh, new efficiencies, and so on are gained. But there's also a destructive side because the incomes and therefore the financing of the way of life of the people engaged in the old, their values are destroyed. So you have workers technologically obsolete, you have capitalists who are driven out of business, and so on. So this expansion of market capitalism tends to erode and destabilize community and social life. And people respond to that by trying to protect their lives, not, not to accept this mandated change, having to move to a new place to get a job, having to change industries. And so people organize in a variety of ways through government, through labor unions, even through corporations, non-governmental organizations, historical preservation societies, environmental groups. Uh, they organize in various ways to protect social relationships and the ecological relationships on which social relationships are founded and to protect those against the creative destruction that Schumpeter talks about. So everywhere you have the market extending itself, then you get this protective response alongside it or, or in response to it. And so this is his double movement. For a century, the dynamics of modern society were governed by a double movement. The market expanded continuously, but this movement was met by a counter-movement checking its expansion. This counter-tendency was based on the principle of social protection and aimed at the conservation of man and nature. It possessed all the unmistakable characteristics of a spontaneous reaction. A striking proof is provided by comparing countries of widely dissimilar political and ideological configurations. Victorian England and the Prussia of Bismarck were poles apart, and both were very much unlike the France of the Third Republic or the Empire of the Habsburgs. Yet each of them passed through a period of free trade and laissez-faire, followed by a period of anti-liberal legislation in regard to public health, factory conditions, social insurance, public utilities, and so on. Under the most varied slogans, with very different motivations, a multitude of parties and social strata put into effect almost exactly the same measures. This double movement, as Polanyi calls it, first unfolded during the 19th century. The principles of laissez-faire were dominant during the middle years of the century. But by 1870, governments began to act across a broad front 
to protect nature, improve working conditions, and safeguard public health. Ron Stanfield sees a similar reaction shaping up today. The whole, whole backlash phenomenon to globalization is very much in the Polanyi frame. It has no unifying ideological presence. It's not left-wing. There's a lot of right-wingers there. You know, Pat Buchanan uh, objects to the current pattern of globalization. A lot of Republican conservatives are objecting to Bush's proposed immigration laws and so on. So there's a very mixed bag of people that are in this um, uh, anti-globalization movement. And that's exactly what Polanyi said about the protective response. It was not driven by any ideological scheme. Instead, it was spontaneous. It arose out of the social disruption that the extension of market capitalism brings about. Society acts to protect itself, Polanyi says, but in a spontaneous and uncoordinated way. Laissez-faire was planned, he says in The Great Transformation. Planning was not. Society's self-protective response, in other words, is not some sort of homeostatic mechanism guaranteed to arrive at a happy medium. In fact, it can often take virulent forms, like fascism. Fascism, in Polanyi's view, was very much the response of deeply disturbed and disorganized societies to an economic system that refused to function during the 1930s. It was not restricted to Germany and Italy, but exerted its appeal from Japan to Argentina, from Hungary to Portugal. Polanyi also insisted that society's self-protective response doesn't automatically improve the functioning of the market system. It can also impair it, and thus, as he says, endanger society in a new way. Society can be as blind a force as the market. Kari Polanyi-Levitt is Karl Polanyi's daughter, an emeritus professor of economics at McGill University. She thinks that this point has to be emphasized in order that her father's idea of the double movement not be misunderstood. The impression can be created that the double movement is a kind of a self-regulating mechanism whereby capitalism and the market system has been forever moderated so that it will not destroy itself or destroy society. And my point here is that there is nothing inevitable about this. And if we look at the world, not in terms of national economies, but in terms of what is commonly called globalization, we will see that there are no mechanisms of a supranational character or a global character that in any way can perform the sort of protective functions which the nation-states performed in the 19th and 20th century. These same nation-states are increasingly being uh, integrated into a rather predatory style of global capitalism. So I um, think that there really is what I call an existential contradiction between laws, economic laws, which are in fact the laws of capitalist economics, of uh, reproduction of capital, of um, profitability, etc., etc., and the needs of human beings to live in societies that 
deliver a certain amount of security and other social supports, right? And 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 uh, enable um, people to engage in other aspects of life other than dealing with the economic. And that is really what my father's work is about. That is what his ideas are about. Kari Palanyi-Levitt describes the relation between society and the market as an existential tension. It's a phrase aimed at any attempt to blunt the radical edge of her father's thought. It insists that market and society embody antagonistic rather than complementary principles. And it draws attention to Karl Polanyi's socialist conviction that in the long run, society will either re-embed the market or the market will destroy society. The Great Transformation was published in 1944, just as the Second World War was about to end. Karl Polanyi was very conscious of the timing. He believed that the agonies of the 20th century could all ultimately be traced to the derangement of society by the free market utopia. And he wanted to do what he could to ensure that the calamity would not be repeated. He also wanted to impart a vision The Great Transformation, in his view, had been produced by two interlocking forces, the machine and the market. And these forces, he believed, had combined to produce something radically new. He called it complex society. By this he meant a society whose members are so tightly interlaced and so manifestly interdependent that the individual can no longer claim to stand apart. It's a society, to put it more concretely, where your car might be altering the climate, where practically everything that sustains you comes from an unknown place or an unknown hand, where nothing more than the flip of a switch can involve you in social relations which you cannot see, cannot anticipate, and cannot control. Polanyi regarded this new condition as, quite literally, a revelation. Liberal political thought had assumed that society exists only to foster and protect the purposes of the individual, that it has, so to speak, no positive existence, no reality in itself. But when this utopian idea was actually put to the test through the ordeal of industrialization, two things happened. First, society fought back, and so showed its reality in that way. And second, people were woven so tightly together in the new commercial and technical networks that their dependence on society became obvious in that way as well. As a result, Polanyi said, it became clear that society is something more than a collection of individuals. No society is possible in which power and compulsion are absent, nor a world in which force has no function. It was an illusion to assume a society shaped by man's will and wish alone. Yet this was the result of the market view of society, which equated economics with contractual relationships, and contractual relations with freedom. 
The radical illusion was fostered that there is nothing in human society that is not derived from the volition of individuals, and that could not, therefore, be removed again by their volition. Society as a whole remained invisible. What had been invisible to liberal thought now stood clearly revealed, Polanyi said. But recognizing and accepting this revelation, he thought, would require a revolution in consciousness. The Judeo-Christian tradition had supposed that the individual faces God as a free agent, morally answerable for his or her actions. But modern persons, Polanyi had concluded, are no longer free agents. Their freedom has been caught up in the webs of complex society. This new condition, therefore, requires a fundamentally new religious attitude. University of Toronto economist Abe Rothstein was a friend and collaborator of Karl Polanyi's towards the end of Polanyi's life. And he often discussed with Polanyi the question of freedom in a technological society. One of the things that irrevocably changed in a machine society, in a technological society, was a challenge to the basic religious promise, whether in Christianity or in Judaism or in other religions, the basic promise that we could somehow, if we acted right, achieve a kind of personal salvation, a kind of way of extracting ourselves from the coils and the toils of the world and keeping a kind of unblemished soul. And that means that you opt out of all of the compromising situations all around you, its injustices and the rest, and that you can live in such a way that that promise could be a reality. For Polanyi, that was the real issue, that once a machine society had created that very tight interlocking network of human existence where we were bound to each other both through the wires of the uh, electric and the computers and every other way once we were so integrated to each other it was a pure illusion to imagine that we could in some moral sense opt out the way in which we had been somehow interwoven into a network of this new kind of community meant that there was no way to imagine, unless we wanted to imagine falsely, that we could extricate ourselves morally from it and that we could pretend to a perfect, unsullied conscience. The reality of society, in Polanyi's view, meant nothing less than a new consciousness. It demanded the abandonment of certain illusions about the individual's ability to shape his or her own destiny. But it by no means meant giving up the idea of freedom. It meant rather recasting this idea in social terms. Freedom, he thought, would now have to be recovered by making society itself a free and conscious being. The task, as he understood it, of socialism. And so he ends the great transformation, as I will end tonight's program, on this chastened but still hopeful note. Resignation was ever the fount of man's strength and new hope. 
man accepted the reality of death and built the meaning of his bodily life upon it. He resigned himself to the truth that he had a soul to lose and that there was worse than death and founded his freedom upon it. He resigns himself in our time to the reality of society, which means the end of that freedom. But, again, life springs from ultimate resignation. Uncomplaining acceptance of the reality of society gives man indomitable courage and strength to remove all removable injustice and unfreedom. As long as he is true to the task of creating more abundant freedom for all, he need not fear that either power or planning will turn against him and destroy the freedom he is building by their instrumentality. This is the meaning of freedom in a complex society. It gives us all the certainty that we need. On Ideas, you've listened to Part 3 of Markets and Society, The Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi. It was written and presented by David Cayley. The words of Karl Polanyi were read by Care Wells. Our series continues next week at this time. Our thanks to Anna Gomez, Margie Mendel, and Kari Polanyi-Levitt of the Polanyi Institute at Concordia University in Montreal for their help in the preparation of these programs. Technical production, Tim Lorimer. Editorial consultants, Richard Handler and Susan Mahoney. Associate producer, Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this five-hour series for $25, or five audio cassettes or CDs for $40, taxes and shipping included. To order, please call 416-205-7367. You can also send a check or credit card information to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1, E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bruni Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts tonight, and between the covers. <laughs>